Hi, everybody. Hi. How is everybody? Did everybody get to have lunch? Who didn't get to have lunch? Everybody ate. This is good. So you're well fed. Are you awake? Okay, good. My name is Ted Cohen. I'm with Tag Strategic. We consult for a variety of companies ranging from two guys in a garage with a great idea and no sense of how to get it off the ground to people running multi-billion dollar corporations trying to figure out why they're crashing to the ground. That's what I do. How many of you have been to a panel before that I've moderated? And yet you come back. Okay. Get to say that every time. It's uh, good to be here. Got a great panel today. We're going to talk about the differences, the nuances, the challenges, and the benefits of having an online media network, a media property. And I'm going to let everyone introduce themselves, starting on the far end with somebody who I used to have breakfast with all the time. He lived in L.A. My name is Jeff Leeds. I'm the general manager at Spin Media. We're the owner of properties like Spin Magazine, Vibe Magazine, and music blogs like Stereo Gum, Idolater, and Accelerator. So we're one of the biggest independent publishers of music content online. Hi, I'm Travis Donovan. I'm an executive editor for the Huffington Post. I also recently started my own uh, platform for musicians called Shoutable. Still early days for us. You'll hear more about that hopefully next conference. My name is Azia Shine. I'm the founder and publisher of Fusicology.com. We promote soul, funk, jazz, hip-hop, and house music, and we're celebrating our 10th year anniversary. Whoa. Congratulations. And I already said who I was. So, as I say to you every time, I'll say it again. We're doing a panel that you've all shown up for. You had other choices. There's two other panels. Hopefully, this was the right choice that you made. However, if you leave here not getting the answer to what you came here for, it's because you didn't raise your effing hand. So, if you have a question, kind of interject. We're not going to do Q&A at the end. If Jeff says something provocative and you disagree or whatever, I will call on you. It shouldn't break into complete chaos, but... We want you to leave here with learning what you came here to find out about or finding out something you had no idea you were even going to discover. With that said, you're in your 10th year. What were you doing before that? I was a booking agent for soul and hip hop and dance music artists. And I didn't before that. I was a promoter for raves in the 90s. Who remembers that? Yes. If you remember, (laughs) you weren't there. Okay. (laughs) Exactly. Bow. Bow. Ten years ago, doing an online media property was was a real challenge, especially without a brand attached. I mean, you weren't doing MTV.com. Right. So what have you learned over the last few years? Uh, Well, I learned I made the right decision by not going print. Uh, Everybody was like, well, where's the print mag? What's going to happen? And I'm like, I'm not going to do it because I didn't have the money. I also learned that it's not just about content because people say content is king, but it really is about simplicity of design. When people go to your site and it's really, really busy and it looks crazy, they're going to leave. They just want to get information. And if they have to click more than maybe once, they might never come back. Okay. Early on, there were were all these, if you saw my Yahoo, my AOL, my whatever, they were customizable pages. I could go in and say, move that. I mean, that was the gee whiz was being able to drag boxes around. And that's all kind of gone away now. Customization is more like music preference kind of stuff, more like um, Echo Nest stuff they were talking about earlier. How do you target somebody who might have who might be interested in the hip-hop side of it could care less about the funk and the r&b part of it. that's a good question um we do have you know a, a 
an opportunity for people to search and f- to look for things. But I like to think that people that are into soul music are into all factions of soul music. So we kind of almost make them look into the hip hop and the funk and the, and the jazz and the house music side of things. But I think that in general, our site is so niche and targeted that we don't have that kind of problem. We don't promote a lot of mainstream stuff. We really stay away from some of the bad EDM and just in what my opinion is, of course, it's just my opinion. You so, stay away from the bad EDM? Bad, is there good EDM? No, I'm just kidding. There, I'm just kidding. I'm it, just kidding. it depends. It depends. There is a some... little bit of Molly on your phone? No. I... <laughs> now it's called Molly, right? Yeah, okay. whatever. I figured. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think that we, you know, people always said to me, you know, you have to go mainstream. You know, why aren't you promoting this? Why aren't you doing this? And I think that because we stuck with what we were good at, we were able to then get our audience so attached to us that we have huge brand loyalty. We have an over 60% return rate. So if someone goes to our site, more than 60% of the people return to it. We also have people that stay on our site for over three and a half minutes. So it's a pretty long time considering we're not Facebook or you know Gmail. So I think it's being niche, it's being targeted, and it's being true to yourself. Because the minute I think that you try to kind of div- diversify, but in the way where it's not authentic, people will see it and they'll stop messing with your brand. Your loyalty and your faction will go away. Okay. You both are, have worked for major media. You're currently working for a major online media property. You were with glo- two global media properties. Why don't you go first, Travis? Um, what, have you, what have you learned? You're, you're, you're now going to Shoutable. Mm-hmm. What have you learned from Huffington Post that, that translates? What, what are the lessons that are good and the lessons, the mistakes you won't make? Yeah, I think the biggest thing the Huffington Post has taught me is that there's so much we can do with technology that people have hardly even tapped into. So a lot of what we're trying to do with Shoutable, my co-founder was also at Huffington Post, and we helped build a lot of the proprietary technology there, is unlock some of that for artists so that they can learn better about the distribution of their content and who it's reaching. HuffPost is extremely driven by analytics. Um, and this doesn't mean we have like some siloed analytics team off in some other building. Every single editor is expected to be plugged into the analytics day to day, and even like moment da- to moment. You have, a da- you have an internal dashboard. Yes, yeah, and it's it's all proprietary stuff we built. But real time is really key there because we found that you know these days everybody loves to talk about big data. Um, and it's nice if you have a huge pile of data. What is big data? Everybody throws the word big. Who doesn't know what big data is? Okay, we got one hand back there. Thanks, Howard, for that. I needed that. I, th- you know, I can count on him for the one hand. I think the best way to describe it is getting metrics on every single thing possible that you can, okay. but then nobody actually knows what to do with it. Right. Um, so it, it becomes especially useless when that data is not in real time. So a week from now, you're looking at the past week and saying, okay, here's our metrics for the past week. And yeah, you can learn some things. You can say, okay, this worked and this didn't work. And we can make some assumptions about that going forward. But we've found the most actionable data is when you can look at what an article is doing in the first few hours after you hit that publish button. We have found that that is the best time to optimize and to get something to a wider audience is by looking right after you hit that publish button immediately, how are people responding to that article? How are they reacting to it? What are they doing with it? How it are sounds they like a scene it? from Virtuosity. It sounds like, did you ever see Virtuosity? No. Denzel, don't who, hate me. Nobody saw that movie. Denzel Washington, Russell Crowe. Oh, not the They only had one. like meters going while they're doing a talk show and oh, that... That question resonated. It went up really high. Wait, the next question didn't, so let's change the question. Are we too analytical? I think it's 
I think, yes, most people are too analytical now and that they don't know what to do with it. It's about picking the right metrics. And those metrics are going to be different depending on what it is you're trying to sell, what it is you're trying to get out there to the world. I think picking a few core metrics uh, that, that really resonate with the mission of your business or your brand is the important thing. Mm-hmm. Jeff? Uh, I, think, I think that it's definitely possible to get to sort of analytics focus and to analytics driven. I think, And I think for most people, there's kind of a relatively comfortable baseline that you know everyone kind of gets to and says okay they an editor of a site should know that how big their audience is and what are the most popular kinds of content and that sort of stuff there but it's true i mean we have people that are looking you know minute to minute at sort of how their whole sort of site is performing i don't think that's a bad thing i just think you can't you can't it's tough to make sort of strategic level decisions if you're just completely focused on the micro but generally i think data is a great thing and i think one of the big differences between you know what media was 10 or 15 years ago and what it is today is there is that sort of accountability around what is that what does the audience actually want to read you know in the old days it was like uh if you had a magazine you knew maybe you you know your metric was how many copies of that magazine you sold right we put so and so on the cover it sold well you don't know who read what article how they found it you know what they thought of it today you know how every single piece of content is discovered and consumed by every single person so, and I think that's a good thing because that helps you to, it doesn't mean you don't do content that may be uh, difficult or may be expensive or whatever, but it, it does mean that you actually know what's working. Okay. First you. She's going to do Jerry Springer here for you. She's going to run. We're official now. Hello. Mike okay. check. All Who right. are you? Where are you from? And why are you harassing My name's him? Anthony Polis. I saw you at IMS. That was awesome. And I've Which part- one? Last I've- year or this year? Uh, this year. Oh, okay. And I've also been to one of your house parties, by the way. Uh oh. But Wait, what? I live in LA. I, okay. I've never been one okay. of your house parties. Okay, so I gotta do. Uh, can I do one? Everybody okay. knows I gotta do one quick story. So I, these okay. these these kids, and they are kids. They're twenty five somethings. Uh, how much? Not not offending the twenty five something. Come over for a party, and they said, "Could we use your house for a party? This is great." And I went, "Yeah, you're gonna sure Labor Day weekend. Why not? You'll pay for the party. I'll invite a few friends. You can have your friends over." My assistant calls me at Thursday at like three o'clock and she says, do you know the party's on Eventbrite with your home address? <laughs> so I called them up and I called one of them. I refer to them nicely as Larry Curley and Mo. I called them up and I said, look, I'm in tech. You're in tech, but I'm a little bit old. I don't know. You might not use the same term. Which one of you fucking morons put my home address on the Internet? You clowns. Anyway, the party ended up going really... Were you there for the... I don't know if I was there for that one, because this one was... He doesn't remember. Okay. Right. He doesn't remember. If you were there, you don't remember. Right. Anyway, <laughs> at the end of the party, my girlfriend calls me outside. The party's over at 9 o'clock. It's 9.30. It's all gone very well. I walk outside, and she says, look. I go, look. Look at what? What's missing? There was a doormat. Our doormat came from Fancy.com. Love Fancy.com. The doormat said, oh, shit, not you again. Somebody took the doormat on their way out. It was a parting gift. An hour later, I went to put the (laughs) straw version of this hat on. It was on the dining room table. It was gone. Wow. So, lost hat. Anyway, great party. I can assure you I didn't take anything from your house. Okay, good. Good. It's all right. Anyway, good party. Anyway, go back to your question. I'm sorry, folks. We digress. Coffee uh, afterwards, you and me. Okay. Yeah, we'll catch up. So my question is this, is I, I work with a company called DJCity.com. We provide DJs with music, and we have a blog too. So I, I look at metrics all the time, and I'm kind of obsessed with them. And, and it's like, you know, I don't know if you guys have this battle, but it's like how much do you look at the metrics? How, how much do you weigh them in your determination on what to serve people? Because you could just follow metrics and, and have that determine all your content strategy. 
or you could do a balance, or you could ignore it completely, which is what some dinosaurs still do. So that's that's my question. Well, it's interesting because our site promotes really niche-specific music, right, and not mainstream. And, of course, we're going to get more hits if we promote the Kanye West tour, but I like new jazz and abstract music, so I find the balance promoting a little bit of what is kind of obvious and then throwing in the stuff that's not so obvious but featuring it and putting it almost in your face and then it gets more hits because I'm curating the information to you in a certain way where I'm basically telling you you almost have to look at it. So I think there's a nice balance between the things that you almost have to promote because it's going to get you hits and the things that you want to promote in order to sustain your brand and to have some sort of, you know, not be another site that just promotes hip hop. Or whatever you do. So. Yeah, I think balance is the exact right keyword for that. Um, you know, at, at HuffPost, if you just go to the HuffPost homepage right now, if we were to automate that page and make it so that only the stuff that clicked the best on that page was at the top. So that, that whole page, our editors have a real-time click map version of it where they're seeing every single click that every single piece of content is getting. If we were to automate that so all that stuff was at the top, you would see – cute panda slideshows, Kim Kardashian slideshows. Oh. You, you get an idea of what would be all the stuff at the top, right? So, yeah, yeah. You, you could yeah. say right. that. Yeah. Uh, I wouldn't call it that. Uh, I didn't say that. I uh, 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 but so you have to strike that balance. It's not just about, you know, r- lowering yourself to that lowest common denominator. Um, you really have to mix in the stuff that you have an editorial prerogative for, an editorial mission statement behind, um, and find a way to seamlessly integrate that. The other thing, though, about just looking at metrics and when is it too much or not enough, I think the key is not to over-obsess about them, but think of them as having a pulse check on your audience because they will always change. Your, your audience is always, always changing. And trust me, there will be that day when you think this piece of content is going to go viral because our audience loves this topic and it always goes viral. Guess what? There's going to come that day where it falls flat and your audience doesn't give a shit about that anymore. The opposite is true. There's going to be that day where you're like, nobody cares about this. I'm not going to post this when you're up in the morning figuring out what to write about. And then guess what? It's going to go viral and go crazy. So you can never, it's never a true shot, right? You can, you can mitigate the risk uh, behind the content. It's ultimately a gamble, though, either way. So I, in, I can only speak for music rec- recommendation sites, but I always argue that it's got to be part about the music you knew you wanted, the music you didn't know you wanted, and the music you have to know about. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that if you're just giving people back what they think, what they want, eventually it, it, it becomes a very bad experience. I mean, you're, you're, it's satisfying, but it, you don't grow. And same thing I would, I would assume in journalism. Yeah, if you're going to do anything, sorry, if you're going to do anything at scale, it's going to have to be a mix of that sort of whatever you'd like to call it, right? The mainstream or the maybe sometimes lowest common denominator stuff versus the stuff that you're actually really there to kind of share with people, the stuff that really represents who you are as a brand. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and the only way to not do that is just to really be content with a much smaller audience. Okay. You had a question. Yeah. Travis, can you give us an example of how exactly you use some of the data that are available to you? 
Yeah, I mean, the example we just talked about is a good one, which is our editors are seeing in real time how things are clicking on that on the front page of HuffPost as well as any of our vertical pages, so the entertainment section, for example, politics section. Um, our editors are actually A-B testing all of those elements as well. So we A-B test uh, not only headlines, but you'll see us A-B testing photos, subheadlines, also all in real time. So our editors will, you know, just pick two headlines or two photos for a lot of different stories and see which one in real time is working best for the readers. Um, again, that's something you can only really do in real time that only works in real time. And it's dependent upon the technology to be able to do that, right? So I, I think that we're entering an age, and again, what our mission kind of is with Shoutable is to make this type of technology a lot more democratized so that some of these powerful tools that we've built and that are proprietary to this large media company can be available for everyday use for artists, for people who aren't expected to be data wizards or SEO masters or social marketing masters, etc. So does it mean that you uh, automatically push out more content that is one similar to the one that got a lot of hits or are there some kind of restrictions because you don't want to go there because of the nature of uh, the... Yeah, not not always. I mean, there's two ways of looking at it. One is informing the greater content strategy. Uh, again, getting that pulse check that I mentioned before and knowing, okay, generally our readers are interested in this stuff right now. Generally, they kind of hate this stuff right now. And you'll, you'll see that change over time, right? There was... As you can imagine, there was a time on the Huffington Post when anything that had anything to do at all with Sarah Palin would click like crazy and would share like crazy, and people were obsessed about it. I miss Did those that days. <laughs> yeah. Don't we all? Don't we all? Um, as you can imagine, there came a time when that just dropped off a cliff, and in fact, it would hurt us to post things about Sarah Palin because nobody cared about it anymore. That so, happened to us with Kanye West to bring his name back up again, because back in the day, our site's been up for 10 years. In 2005, I was booking his DJ A-Track, and Kanye was underground and cool and making eclectic music. I'm not saying... I'm, let me just on record say whatever you guys think of him now. He's not that 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 he was. You know what I'm. You know what I mean. And now if we post Kanye, we don't feature him. We kind of put him at the bottom, which is like it's just what we have to do because we have to. Um, be real and true to our readers. Our readers don't want to see, you know, Kanye West featured on our site, but maybe in 05, even 07, they did. So it's kind of, you have to gauge, you know what I'm saying? But you can't leave it out because it's still relevant. So that's, I think that's where curation comes in. And that's why there's editors and that's why things aren't automated. Otherwise they wouldn't need people like us. I, I think beyond just determining the content strategy too, back to your question, um, it, it the technology allows us to find better ways to sell the content that is important to our editorial mission statement, right? So we're talking about essentially two different types of content, the stuff that we think the world should be reading that they maybe don't care about and the stuff that we know they clearly care about, so we want to give them some of that too. Right. For the stuff that they don't care about, we can experiment with why don't they care about it and how can we get them to care about it, right? And sometimes that's just writing a different headline or changing the photo that you're using to sell that piece of content. But being able to do that experimentation and say, you know what, this is an important story. How do we get people to actually give a shit about it? I think that that's really powerful. You also use it to test product features. Like if you have an article page that looks one certain way and you can see how, you know, on average, how long do people stay on that page? How much of the story do they read? And then you have a different template, a different look and feel, different design. Does that change it, right? Does that, do people read longer? Do they stay on the page longer? Stuff like that. Okay. I went away for one second. I'm right back. Somebody sent me a message. Someone texted me from the audience, but I won't say who. Anyway. return your welcome your back. Yes. Speak directly into your microphone. Okay. Other questions? The other one. 
Back there. Emmanuel, yes, sir. Mike is coming. He's learned not to even start talking till she hands him the mic. Yeah. We train quickly. Yes. Um, <laughs> well, I'm a journalist, which is a dying bread, I think. And uh, I have billed, I think, $500 worth of writing uh, material last year. So uh, my, my question to you, you said you were trying, Travis, to sell stories. I've closed down a couple of magazines in the print world. I've tried a couple of magazines, including one called One Movement for Music, which I invite you to go uh, on the website and download. We, we tried to give the magazine for free and try to get a little bit of advertising and traction and all that. Yet, the figures don't add up. Even if you take the mechanicals, i.e. the printing and the mailing costs, online publications have a very hard time to live because you can't, you know, the revenues do not match actually the expenses because you still need to pay people to write, you still need to pay the webmaster and so on. So how do you make it work? Um, the way we make it work is um, being niche and targeted. So, you know, we kind of know our place and we know what we're good at. And so our advertisers that want to reach 21 to 45-year-old lovers of, let me, for the lack of a better term, black music, because that's what it is, they come to us. Now, if they want to, if there's an indie rock thing, I will probably say no to that check because I know that that's just not what our site is. And I'll send them over to oh my rockness or one of our one of our co um, colleagues or you know competitors, depending on how you want to think of it. Um, as a Canadian socialist, I don't believe in competition. I believe the pie is big for everybody, right? So you know what I mean. And I, I think that what you do is you you have to maintain your costs. So you don't need a full-time developer, full-time designer. You know, you can build your site on Joomla or WordPress. You can sell banner ads, and you can actually make money if you have a really small skeleton staff. And as for editorial, I'm going to keep it very honest with you, um, we mainly just do you know, user-generated stuff. And we mainly get pu publicists that send us the information and we just repost it on our own website. Is it bad not to have a lot of exclusive content? I don't think so because I think aggregated content works just as well as long as it's filtered and monitored and curated for your site. Like, I would never have anything on my website that doesn't suit our audience. I'm pretty militant about that. And I think that's how you make money. Skeleton staff, a very niche and targeted sort of out look and then also user generated content for outreach instead of paying for editors and I'm sorry for any writers out here because I really appreciate you guys but it is a bit of a dying breed <laughs> anybody want to go with that one sorry well I was just gonna I just should chime in I think that there's it's Jeff you really, are you a dying breed I hope not I, mm -hmm. I think that not not, not today uh, <laughs> but I think it's tough it's really tough I think to identify you know certainly in music publications that are sort of standalone you know profitable or working uh, print publications, right? I think if you look at the ones that are out there today, we we could maybe go through names if you want to. I think almost every one of them ha is essentially subsidized by something else, right? They're, it's actually a marketing company that's kind of got a print publication for whatever purposes, or it's something else that's got print as a essentially a marketing vehicle for the larger brand. Uh, there's not a lot of people left who are doing print sort of as the lead dog in a in a media company, right? So um, there's no question that it's it's really tricky to do print. So. Again, I always have to, it's all about me, so why not? Um, I subscribe to Wired. I just got a thing from Wired. I can have two years of Wired for 24-ish, whatever it is, for 50, $20, okay? All I want is the tablet edition. 
if I buy the tablet edition, it's $5 an issue. So it's $60 a year, $120 for two years. I paid $20 for two years of Wired. I never opened the print edition. I only look at it, but I'm getting the print edition to get the free tablet edition. How the hell do those economics make sense? How can they send me the print edition every month that I basically give to a, basically it's a pass along to, and not make a, you know, the economics. I mean, how does that make sense? You run that by me one more time. You're paying that. You're paying. I'm how paying much for twenty the print? bucks to get the print edition of Wired, so that I right. get the free tablet version of Wired. I never read the print edition. I only not get the tablet. Then. But that's they will not make the the iPad edition available for. Say, I'll say, don't send me the magazine. Send them to a school. Right. But I, so I, I don't know is the short answer. I'm guessing that maybe they don't want to disintermediate those things for you know their own sort of economic reasons. They're making a better you know, profit off the print deal than they would the standalone app deal, maybe? Is that Possibly. how it seems? So, yeah, I mean, I think, I think that that's... They just want to show the numbers of subscribers? Yeah, I mean, they're, they're st- if, yeah, if they're still in the print... Based on subscribers, print subscribers. Right. Right, so they're trying Even to... Even if I never read it. They don't care. They're trying to... If, if it's the print model, they're trying to maintain a certain rate base for advertisers, and that's because that's really where the money comes from in print still. So they're, they're doing everything they can to keep... They'll... Ultimately, they'll do anything for you to stay a print subscriber so they can keep you in the rate base. Okay. What is this print? Any comment or question? Uh, <laughs> <you>? Exactly. <laughs> Did you have a comment or no? Did you have a comment at all or no? Or you just, yes. You seem, okay. Well, the, the I've only watched point you react was, a couple times. The only point I'm making is that the, the rates are higher on print than they are on online. And so because that's what's funding their online service, they will do, like you said, they'll do anything to keep you as a subscriber to the print version because until the online rates for advertising go up to a point where it makes more sense for them to shut down the print magazine, they need that as a financial incentive to balance out the business. A lot of the times what we'll do is we'll charge an all-in fee and we'll include everything. You know what I mean? It'll be a little bit of street promotion. It'll be, um, you know, some guerrilla tactics. It'll be banner ads. It'll be a dedicated newsletter. You'll be on our site in many different ways. You know, a little thing over here, a little tab over here. We have to do that these days when we didn't have to do that maybe five years ago because, you know, and we probably will charge you less these days. So it's, it's kind of doing more for less money. But I think that's the only way to kind of survive, I think, and sustain it yourself and where do you draw the line on advertorial it, it, or it, branded content we were talking a little bit before the panel about branded content what are your thoughts what's everybody's thoughts about where is the ethical line on branded content or does it just have to be clear that right. it's the top 25 bands that killed themselves brought to you by Samsung <laughs> right I, yeah I don't think they would do that one I, I was gonna I was I think that you'd see the top you know the 18 18 photos of awesome cat smiles brought to you by Crest but <laughs> but I think that I think that there's I think done that, okay. I'm sure it worked um, I think that I think that that's I think most of that stuff is actually okay I think that the you know, there's actually a lot of talk about about it these days, uh, as if it's a completely new thing. But obviously, there's been advertorial sort of labeled con- labeled content in newspapers and magazines for decades. And I, you know, it's sort of it's sort of uh, as we're talking about the you know the, the sort of basic advertising business itself is you know is changing very quickly. Um, mobile dollars, right? Mobile mobile uh, pennies are what we're getting instead of desktop dollars and so forth. So 
if native advertising or branded, you know, branded content is, is where the advertising market wants to go, I don't really think that's per se a problem as long as there's really clear disclosure. So if you, you know, if you go to Buzzfeed, right. And you see the 18 awesome cats brought to you by crest, it's a different color background. It says brought to you by crest on it. Uh, You know, you can click on it or not. No one's going to make you, but I think that as long as the sort of editorial uh, body or outlet has made the decision to kind of clearly tell you, this is different. This is, we made this for an advertiser, um, then I think it's probably okay. And it's so actually better what, than, it's better than, uh, in, in my mind, the alternative, which is increasingly intrusive banner ads and like butterflies flying at you and all kinds of other stuff happening on your, right. <laughs> Brought to you by Crest. So I, on I think, I think it's better. I think it's, be, I think ultimately it's a better experience for readers to have a choice of content that's, you know, some of it's right, sort of traditional, some of it's paid. Uh, rather than a worse and worse sort of banner advertising experience. Yeah. Okay. If those are the choices. So, as you look at all this and every who what what besides Huffington Post, who are your influences, role models, or whatever? Who's doing stuff right that you're going to try and assimilate? In pay terms, an homage in terms of to native advertising, in terms of advertising strategy, in terms of content. St- I mean, you've probably looked at who you think's doing it right and who's doing it wrong. So let's talk about who you think's doing it wrong. No, good. Uh, who's doing I it mean, right? I mean, honestly, I just have to echo a lot of what Jeff said. Was it's it's all about how you present the content. But honestly, the bigger picture is that great content is great content, and shitty content is shitty content. So it's it doesn't matter if it's branded or not. Good content is going to be received well and is going to be shared and will spread and crappy content whether it's by an editor or by a brand is going to die and not do well i mean it's at the end of the day it's all about the content um i like the example you brought up before this which was the regeneration project right which was sponsored or funded by hyundai right but their interaction in that actual video was yeah when i watched it i expected a hyundai for them to drive to the studio in a hyundai there'd be a hyundai poster on the wall in wherever they nothing it just said brought to you by hyundai at the end, this was brought to you by Hyundai. It's yeah. great. Yeah. Lexus did the same thing with verses and wor- verbs. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? It's like a spoken word thing. It was very low-key Lexus branding. Like, it wasn't like someone driving up in a Lexus, but it was presented by Lexus. It was very classy, and they had, like, a small little commercial, and, and it did really, really well. And, they've, you know, it's a, it's a spoken word sponsored thing by Lexus. Who would have thought? I think Scion did a really great job right. mm-hmm. infiltrating um, the hip-hop market, now the art market. I think certain people do it really well. A Website property that I love that I look up to is OK Player. Um, mm-hmm. They're they're my partners. You know, I have to kind of say that. And I'm just kidding, but they they really are a great website for content and also just the way it's built and how clean it is and how it you know they'll promote stuff, but then they'll also do like a, you know an interview with Questlove of the Roots and it's not necessarily an advertorial. It's just content. So, but he, you know, it's kind of a it's a it's a funny. F- thin line between advertorial and content but I think that if you do it classy and if you do it the right way and you don't have a busy site it works really well I I think in many cases it's not so much that brands are wanting to sell you their specific product anymore it's that they want to identify themselves with a greater message so that they feel relevant to you all the time Um, at HuffPost one of our most successful campaigns which is now I want to say in like its third year Mm -hmm. uh, with Johnson & Johnson we did this page called Global Motherhood so it looks like a section like all the other sections politics entertainment etc on HuffPost Um, And it's all focused on global maternity issues that moms around the world are facing in every different country, right? Now, Johnson & Johnson, when they came to us, 
uh, three years ago when we started this, they were basically like, look, we're doing a lot of great things as a brand. We're doing a lot of great things in a lot of communities. But how do we tell that story to people without sounding like we're shilling them or, you know, without sounding really phony about it all? Like, hey, guys, look at what we're doing. We're Johnson & Johnson. So we created this campaign where we have a dedicated editor who's creating content focused around global maternity issues. Mm -hmm. And then it's being interspersed with Johnson & Johnson's own branded content that's being, you know, written by their executives, et cetera, who are writing blogs on the issues of global maternity. Um, but we have our own content that's being created for this. So it's all and mixed in. And what editorial in. control do they have over the branded, over the content that you're creating? Uh, I mean, they just gave us the keys to do it. I Go mean, do it. Okay. Yeah. Basically, it's it's looking to us for, it's trusting us with so our trusting your expertise. voice. They're trusting the voice that you've Yes. Creative yeah, thing. absolutely. And it's it, it worked. I mean, in the first like six months alone, uh, a Comscore study showed that their that brand awareness of Johnson and Johnson had raised like twenty percent. And that was their mission, right? Is they wanted their name to be associated with this larger cause, and not so much like, hey, buy the shampoo while you're looking at this really sad news, you know? Right. Jeff, I, I don't know when you when did when did you take over? Take over what? Spin Media. Uh, the world. Five, did you take I, over the I started. I started there five years ago. Five years ago. Okay. What, what, what have you found have been your best call to actions? Because I'll tell you, I get the emails, okay? And most of the time, it seems like for me, and you may never have breakfast with me again, but it's okay. Um, I want to go to a house party. The house party? <laughs> you have no idea. You should idea. see his girlfriend. <laughs> anyway. Uh, <laughs> wow. I'm going to... Most of now, seriously, I get the emails, and I got to tell you, most of them for me, and you're going to hate me, are deletes because top bands you need to hear for. The, I mean, mostly it was it seemed more like Us Magazine type of you know ten fashion tips for whatever. You're talking as, about email, what emails are you talking about? I'm getting from, spin emails from that spin, say okay. from spin that say top twenty five summer bands, top twenty five tracks you should be listening to, and it seemed a little. Like right. thin for me, and most of them are like, okay, fine, I'll look for a second. Right. Most of them are a, a, a are a delete because it's not like you know a, ta- a a look behind the scenes at whatever or some something that I go, I got to read that. Right. It seemed a little more news, new, um, you know, uh, check out Stan tabloid. Yeah. In terms of the approach. How do we get back to meaty journalism? Totally. Well, there's can two, we? We can't. There's two different. There's two different points though that I would make. One is, and I don't know what sort of time frame we're talking about. I still about, like how, how long. Likewise, I don't know how long you've been a email on the email subscription list. You know, we we acquired Spin a year ago, mm-hmm. and so in that time, you know, we looked at the newsletter really hard because it's actually a really big source of audience for the site. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, they've got a you know among our sites, they have the biggest uh, biggest single email list, and so we we treat it really seriously as a traffic source. What we did because I think there there was a sense that uh, there was kind of a you know sameness to it. I guess um, was we to, your, to the first thing you said actually in this panel. We looked at personalization as a way to sort of respond to that because I think we realized there was a lot of you know sort of generic stuff maybe that was going to everybody when in fact we might be able to do a little bit better if we if we sort of treat each person as an individual and give them the chance to click on stuff that's of interest to them and then program the newsletter in an automated way to to serve them. So there's an editor at Spin, for example, who. Um, is really, you know, is very specifically into like hip hop and electronic music. So right. his newsletter, because of what he clicks on, looks different from 
yours unless you're into the exact same thing he is. And so the, we found through personalization that people are getting more of what they want. And actually the clicks and sort of retention through the newsletter has actually gone up pretty dramatically since we turned that on a couple months ago. Hmm. So I would see what would happen if you clicked on a couple of things and then gave it a couple of weeks to actually oh, okay. respond. Um, you might get more, more soundtracks for the house parties or some okay. other thing that you'd be interested in. So, so, so I, think, I think that you, you're right that you, you less and less, I think, are we in a world where you're just pushing out one thing to, every, to, to the same audience, right? I think, we, I think personalization is actually a huge opportunity. I think we're, we're way past the sort of my Yahoo or the my AOL days. Mm-hmm. There's a 2.0 or 3.0 or 4.0 version of that now that I think is really exciting because... And what is that? Okay. Well, so it's between you know, various sorts of solutions. There are lots of different ways that people can either sign up uh, actively or sort of passively be be given access to stuff that they're more likely to want. So, you know, we have let's we have a, a big pop site called Idolater, for example, right? And Idolater covers Rihanna and Bieber and sort of all the big sort of top 40 people along with emerging people like, you know, churches and Sky Ferreira and whatever. Um, I would think that in the pop world, uh, you know, there are people who are super fans of one thing sometimes, right? Fans of, they might like lots of her music, but they really, really love Rihanna. So shouldn't that person be able to sign up for Rihanna updates from the site? Because that's who they really want. I think they should. And I think if they did, they'd probably come back more. I think when they got that email alert or that text or whatever it is, right. they would they would, they would would be interested in that. They'd be thankful to have that. So I, I'm a big believer in personalization as part of our kind of new road. So uh, going back to, the, I mean, I'm just a big fan. Of, I'm not a fan of this, but a big proponent of like, this giving them what they didn't know they wanted, mm-hmm. and how do you, and how do we keep doing? That? I mean, especially new artists. So if someone's into funk or soul or whatever, I saw. I mean, I don't know if you, could, you consider Bruno Mars. Yeah. So, okay, I saw him on a tennis court two years ago. He was pre- or maybe three years now, but he was presented on a tennis court in the middle of July in Encino by his A and R guy of "You got to come see this guy," and he was brilliant on a tennis court playing with like the minimum PA. I don't know if I, how long it would have taken me to discover him until he started having hits or whatever, but I became a fan before his record was ever released. It was like, you got to know about this. And I think there's an obligation to continue to do that. I think that's why niche sites are great. Like Accelerator's great for that really, it's really specific. I know what I'm going to get and I've known what I was going to get. Would have been around maybe 15 more than long that. Long time. I know. I don't. If I see somebody, I, I'm going to question it. You know. I think um, there's some publications like Herb and Fader. A lot of them kind of went a little bit hipster, and I think it surprised a lot of people. And um, I mean, you know, maybe I don't know. I'm not going to speak on it, but maybe that's why Herb isn't around anymore as a print publication because I think they went away from what they were really about. And I think that you have to be careful. You, you know. I know there's people, I'm in my mid-30s, there's people that are 10, 15 years younger than me that are that know things that I've never even really heard. They call, you know, dubstep. I'm like, you mean drum and bass? Like, I've known about that for, for two decades. So I think there's always going to be that sort of turnaround and you have to have some of that new stuff. But don't go too far left from where your core audience is unless you want to start another brand, which I have thought of personally um, to do for, for certain things. But I think that you have to stick true to your 
brand. I think if Fusicology starts promoting like mainstream whatever or indie rock, people are going to be confused and my core audience is going to hate me and loathe me and never come back. And it's hard to bring people back once they're gone. That's another thing. Once they unsubscribe, there's almost like no rate of them subscribing again. It's it's almost at zero. So it, you have to be kind of careful and I guess you just have to stick with what you know and have good taste in music or good taste in, in, in whatever you're into. Why do, I don't know, I would assume the two of you followed it. You, I'm not saying that you wouldn't, but so don't hit me. The, the failure of the Fox experiment, the uh, Greg Clayman's thing, why did that go so horribly bad? I'll take that. It's all you. I got it. <laughs> you're, talking about the, you're talking about the daily? Yeah. About the daily. The um, daily went dark, lasted less than a year. I, I mean, I don't. So I don't know their sort of internal economics. Right? But externally, think, when you looked at it, what did you see wrong with it? Paywall, I think it felt. Yeah. yeah, I think it felt a little early, and I think it was the paywall. I think that um, that's a that, you know when we're talking about ways that media companies make money, you know there are there aren't that many choices, right? There are we talked about before. There are a lot of magazine centric brands that actually make their money doing something else, right? They're doing events or conferences or they're doing a marketing company on an agency on the side. Right. Um, you can make money selling traditional advertising, which means butterflies and cars coming at you through the screen and all that stuff. You can make money through native advertising, which we touched on, or you can make money through sort of direct subscriptions and paywalls. Right. So, you know, all of, I mean, any one of those, all of those solutions are working for somebody in some way, shape, or form right now. Where is paywall working? Where's, who's paywall working for? I, I mean, I think there are indications that it's working at the New York Times, yeah, and I think that's the one right. to probably watch you know, pretty mm-hmm. closely. I think they probably need to tweak it, and there's, there's talk about them coming up with different levels for different levels of access mm-hmm. and stuff like that. I, I don't think that's – no one thinks that's a failure. Okay. Um, I think – uh, but I think the daily was so sort of specific and so kind of far ahead that – you know, it was it was a stretch. I think to ask people to like have a tablet in order to get the content to begin with, and then a paywall paywall on top of that was a lot. On top of that, too, the content wasn't real time, and so we're in an era now where people want the latest news right now. And the daily was kind of catering to this older mindset of a static newspaper that you get on your doorstep in the morning. That's yesterday's news. Well, people don't really want yesterday's news right now anymore. They want the news of right now, right now. So I think on many fronts, I think the paywall is one of the biggest, but I think it was all of those factors combined. You can only have a paywall if you have a very loyal fan base that's been around for years and years and years. And I think that you have to have that choice, you know, like become a premium subscriber and really give them reasoning behind it. Otherwise people are going to be like, F this site, psh, you know, gone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What, and the Virgin magazine? Branson's magazine that came and went? That was another tablet experiment in online-only journalism. Anybody ever see it? It really came and went very quickly. Mm. I forget so what it was. So quick we didn't Good notice airline, it. What? Maybe if you give away free though. music with it, it wouldn't have gone away or exactly. something. I don't know. Questions? Yes, in the back there. Right, you. She's going to bring you a mic. You're not allowed to speak until she hands it to you. She's really tough, I'm telling you. Here she comes, and the handoff of the baton. Thank okay. you. Hi, my name is Ray. I'm from Voice Bunny, and we just pushed out a product for publishers that turns a blog and an article into spoken word content with professional voice actors. And So I'm curious, for publishers, can you imagine your readers becoming listeners specifically on the mobile, which is what our thinking, so that we don't now have to strain over our mobile phones? So just yeah. your thoughts on that. I think that's great. Is it expensive? No, it's very cheap. It's 20 bucks an article. Yeah, I think that's great. 
I'd love to talk to you. <laughs> I think that's a wonderful idea. Would you guys agree? Yeah, I think, I mean, I don't know if you ever think of it as analogous to podcasting, but I think that that's definitely like sort of an under, still still now sort of an underappreciated and underutilized oh, kind of platform. So, yes. Okay, you're up. Uh, you guys started touching on... And you are, and you're oh, from where? My name is Brent. I'm from Bandpass. Uh, we're okay. doing crowdfunding for concerts. Okay. Uh, and you guys touched a little bit on tablets and new form factors and things like that. A lot has changed, uh, and so far you guys have been talking about online media as just being uh, an online analog to the offline version of just articles, short form or long form. Um, but a lot is changing with things like JavaScript, where you can have more interactive articles with different displays. You've got the different form factors of mobile and tablet and things like that. Where do you guys think this is going, and, and what's going to be the important bits and the unimportant bits uh, to keep people engaged? Oh, that's a tough one. Uh, you know, the problem with the interactive stuff is it's it's fantastic content, but it requires a lot more work that you have to put into it, and so you kind of have to weigh the costs against what you're getting out of it. So, uh, you know, at, at HuffPost, we do a lot of that type of stuff. We have an iPad magazine called Huffington. We have a kind of a wide range of products. I think the, the key to our strategy is that we do everything, right? So, you know, we have those short aggregated pieces, the, the stuff that, you know, we can pump out pretty quickly, uh, that's creating a huge base of content that can then help us fund the more in-depth stuff that we can put a lot of resources behind like that. Uh, I think only doing those resource intensive pieces of content is not economically viable. Yeah. Like we charge people extra if they want, um, you know, really good Java or HTML in the newsletter and everything's clickable. I mean, we got to because, I, you know, I have to pay my developer to, to make it happen. But you charge right. who more? Your end user? No, no, I don't charge my end user a dollar. Right, okay. I was uh, to... the, the advertiser, the, the, the person that actually will post on our site that wants it to be featured. And then we have different levels of featuring, right? You know, if you just want to be featured, if you want to be featured with a newsletter, if you want to have all the bells and whistles, some people really still want flyers on the streets. We offer that, you know. And, and, and so I think that you kind of have to gauge because it's going to be different for every single client of yours. Yeah, I do think, for, you know, the, the whiz-bang, flashy pieces of content Content are more interesting when we go back to that native advertising conversation that we were just having. Um, a great example of something I really like that's not even really content, but it's sponsored on BuzzFeed. They created this thing, uh, kind of poking fun at themselves, which is good. But it's a clock that counts down, and it's it's it says something at the top like a list for every minute. And so each number, depending on what time it is right now, each number will be a different listicle that they have, right? So you just sit there and watch this clock with new lists and pieces of content. <laughs> and guess what? At the bottom, it's like brought to you by Pepsi or something right. like that, cool. right? So brands, I think, are increasingly interested in sponsoring interactive fun, sparkly pieces of content like that that aren't just walls of text. And isotopes are really great, too. So, you know, if people start clicking on certain things, it remembers what you clicked, cookies. It allows people, when they go back to your site, they see the things they've already clicked on, those types of things. And th these things are practically free. Yeah. And we haven't even touched on video. I mean, I think video, too, is, is, is the yeah, most important. Yeah. yeah. People don't read anymore. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, but I'm what? just keeping it real. How do you feel about it? I mean, you uh, HuffPost does a great degree of aggregation yeah. you're pretty much original content you're all original content right how do you feel about the relationship between you and people who might aggregate 
things you must read today. Go to this article on Fusicology. Go to this article on Spin. Go to this article on it. Shoutable. Do you like that? Yeah, we love hits and and, con- and traffic on our website. So we no, can, I know that, yeah. but I mean, is it stealing? Is it? Yeah, in other words, how much of it should live? On the aggregator site, and how much of it is a click through to you? Do and you at really what point? own anything once it's online? You know, yeah. I, I mean, kind of. <laughs> Gosh, I, now you sound like my. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm just playing yeah. devil's advocate. Of course, I don't want somebody stealing all my information and putting it up like their own. But I've seen people do that, and you know, it's a little. There is that. Thin it's an line. homage. It's it not stealing. Homage, it's an homage. It's an homage. But for the most part, I love it because they're not going to get all of our information, and because um, events get posted to our site real time. Like if you go right now and post an event, it's up on our site, much like Facebook. Then you can't keep up unless you're just doing it. And same with the articles, and same with that. So I think it is an homage, and I think for the most part, I love it. Yeah, I cool. think uh, clearly there's like there's direct stealing, which is probably not often a good thing. But a lot of the, what I see on our, on our it's, it's sometimes I think what I see on our sites is um, aggregation in the sense that they'll you know they'll let's say um, uh, something that we don't we don't own. You know, Rolling Stone does a story, does a big interview with the Black Keys. So Stereogum, which is one of our sites, will go, oh, they read the, they sort of read this article. It's five thousand words or whatever, and there's one part of the story where. Black Keys take some shot at Nickelback, right? Easy target, but uh, they, they, <laughs> they news they, at eleven. They they uh, they write they say about Nickelback. So Stereogum does a post that sort of references a little bit of the Rolling Stone article, but it really focuses on that one little piece out mm-hmm. of five thousand words because they know for their audience, right? Just the Stereogum audience, that might be the most provocative sort of part of that. And so there's a whole interesting discussion that Stereogum has something to say about it, and the readers have something to say about it. I mean, I think yes, that's aggregation in the sense that it started somewhere else, and we sort of cut and paste it and added our own sort of commentary to it but I don't I think that's actually a, a service to the Serigram reader because it's like something that they wouldn't have known about otherwise and you're getting your own kind of voice um, your own sort of filter on it through because Stereogum this trusted voice has sort of chosen this to as a topic to talk about cool. so I was I was uh, poking a little fun at Jeff and Stereogum uh, earlier because um, my company Shoutable we had a recent profile on Billboard that was really nice mm-hmm. and Stereogum aggregated it and wrote about it, and I'm reading it. I'm like, oh, this is what it's like to be on the other end of aggregation. Why didn't you just call me and get a quote? I would have loved to talk to you, Stereo Gum. <laughs> um, but so going back to HuffPost, though, because I guess in many ways we're kind of the king or queen of aggregation and have been for a while. HuffPost gets a lot of bad flack in the industry for being some horrible aggregation machine that steals from people, right? The problem is, Not yes. that there's anything wrong with that. <laughs> well, the problem is every once in a while, yeah, we have an editor who screws up and does a horrible job and rips somebody off and then we apologize for it. That's like once a year, if that. What nobody is pointing out are the hundreds of pieces of aggregation we are doing every single day and that we're actually adding value to. Mm-hmm. And that's the key thing. We actually have very, very intense, rigorous training at HuffPost that every editor goes through for aggregation. And the key is if you're not adding any value at all, then we're just going to link out to it. And that's the signature of HuffPost. We link directly to sites that we get nothing in return for. Mm-hmm. We link to the New York Times all the time on our front page and send them tons of traffic. Do they ever link to us? No, of course not. But to us, it's about doing a service to the reader, which is you build trust with your reader if you're willing to show them no matter who has the best news today, we're going to point you to it and we're going to give that to you. We're only going to write something up if we have something of value to add. And that could be connecting the dots to a bigger picture, which right. you see us do a lot. It could just be adding our voice 
voice, adding our own commentary. HuffPost has a very signature voice. And right. so wrapping something up in that voice and presenting it in a different way does become a way to add value and give it to your audience in a way that they will appreciate. But the thing is your audience is smart. They're, they're going to see through cheap aggregation. You know, mm-hmm. If you just rip somebody off and then you say – Great. Now go read the rest of the story at this site or if you just rip off their entire story, you're going to piss off your readers. And pissing off your readers is not going to do your site any good in the long run. Right. This guy had a question. We have time. The final question I'd like to take is something that we haven't touched on that you think we should have touched on. So here's your chance so you don't walk out of the room saying we didn't talk about it. If that's what your question was, go ahead. Oh, it's you again. It's so let's talk about the party. No, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> Halloween, Do you live in LA? October 26th. I actually have a question for it's you. Already you. You said that people don't read anymore, and I'd, I'd have to respectfully disagree. I think people still read. They just read a lot less, um, which is um, – is that That's kind of what I meant. Okay. I meant like shorter words, and okay. not like 500-page articles. Or, or just I, I read so many music blogs now, and I'm reading more and more. But the ones that I do read are very you know brief and to the point. Um, but I love reading still, and maybe, maybe I'm a minority, but – I still read, and it's just I read less, like yeah. like a lot of other people. Looking so. at our, I was at our curious stats, if- you know, it, people tend to only read the first paragraph or so, and it makes me sad because we do have we just did an article, a whole exclusive interview with this artist named Immortal Technique. If you guys know who he is, he's incredible. Definitely. It was a great article, and it was it's an exclusive article. It was like my editor Ani did this article, and it got hits, but. The little Facebook blurb and the little tweet got so much more attention, and I don't know how many people read down to the article. I think most people looked at a little video clip of him performing at Rock the Bells. They skimmed through it, and it's sad, but I think it's it's true, especially um, for the for the whatever generation that's under, say, thirty. I'm just going to say that I don't think I that they read that, that much. I agree. They read a lot less. Less. I just, when you said they don't read anymore, I wasn't sure. I was being a little harsh, but I'm just saying (laughs) because we used to do so, I used to, you know, get so much exclusive content and I used to think content is king, content is king. And now I'm like, aggregation is king and it's free. I I think there's a time and a place for everything too, right? You need to know when a piece of content warrants being a thousand words because it's an in-depth, great piece of journalism and you can pull people into that. And then there's times when, yeah, you're just posting a YouTube video. You don't need to write 500 words about it. People are just going to watch that video. Like you can write two sentences and publish that. So it's, I think it's about being judicious with how you present different types of content. I think social media, for the lack of a return, kind of ruined traditional media because, you know, Instagram, it's like everything is so two seconds you just scroll 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 it's it's our brains are wired differently now like even kids growing up these days let's say back in the day you used to have an argument how old is michael jordan or something people could argue for days now it's like you know 46 whatever and you're like you don't there's no it's totally the world has changed so much because of instant gratification instant information and i and i think that that, that reading full articles people are just not even used to anymore. They don't even see the point. They just look at the highlights, give me the clip, I'm out. How many people okay. just tweeted that? Yes, exactly. <laughs> I think, I think exactly. that's right. I think that one wrinkle I was going to add is just that it's 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 true. It's, I think it's absolutely true that we you know live in a sort of world of, of you know where where people are sort of uh, distracted with by everything, and so it is a lot to ask that anyone is sort of sticking in one place for longer than a few minutes. But I do think there's a certain um, 
there's a certain sort of job that's on us, which is that on those moments when you do see that something is connecting with people to kind of like really jump on that and give them more of that thing, give those, you know, like respond sort of immediately if possible and like deepen that story or offer extra stuff that's related to it or whatever, because you've got, you know, however you did it, you found something, you created something that people do want to read and it's on you to sort of seize the opportunity to give them more. So even in real time, back to our sort of analytics nerd out for a second, like if an editor, you know, IMs me and says, hey, did you see the great traffic on the the, the article? I'm like, what are you talking to me for? Like, go add stuff to that story, right? Because that's something that's working. Um, And that's just a job that's become part of the editorial mission. She's giving us the high sign over here, but Um, you get get the last word. Yeah, I was just going to say, I think there's strategic ways you can take those huge pieces of content and make them get a lot more out of them over the long run, which isn't just like one tweet and here's this big story and oh it fell into the void and nobody cares about the 1200 words i wrote so as an example uh the miley cyrus rolling stone cover yes great story i honestly i recommend everybody read it i did not uh no offense miley if you're hiding in here i didn't give a shit about miley before this at all right and I'm kind of obsessed with her now after reading this article. Wow. Um, was and, it the twerk? But check it out. Here's what got me into so it. Are, I wasn't you, the, gonna, are you the John Hinckley of Marley? Marley. <laughs> I wasn't going <laughs> to read this long article on Miley. I don't care about her. But Upworthy, are you guys familiar with the site Upworthy? They did this fun little basically aggregation. They took one quote from Miley out of that piece that was a really interesting quote. They put it all fancy on a photo so it was really nice for social sharing. I saw that quote. I saw that little nugget and I was like – Oh, holy shit. I'm going to go read that article now, right? So I think with with those bigger pieces of content, you can find lots of little interesting nuggets that you can keep using to pull people in at different points. Um, And really, you just have to milk it for all it's worth is probably the best way to say it. Don't just write a 1,200-word piece and throw it out there and then cry when nobody does anything with it, right? you got to put a little more effort into it than that. Make it feel like an event. We we are getting the big hook, folks. It's over. I think these guys did an amazing job. Thanks very much. Thank you, Ted. Okay. Was it fun?